Who was Jonah? Who was Jonah? And where did his loyalties lie? We're going to take a look at the, the man Jonah. Not so much the book, the story, but the man Jonah. So the Old Testament book titled Jonah, I put it to you, is the best known of all the writings that are called the Minor Prophets. That's because it's more of a story about a prophet than it is a collection of, of judgments, condemnations, predictions, and so forth that are recorded by a prophet. And everybody, everybody seems to love a good fish story. So everybody knows the book of Jonah. Probably, you know, if you've been raised in a uh, biblical household, you learned the story of Jonah way back, way back when you were a little kid. Let's turn to the book of Jonah, and we're going to start off Jonah 1, verse 1. And it says here, well, I'll, let you, I'll give you a minute to find Jonah, because it's a, it's a very short book. I think it's, in mine, it's only two pages. Very short. Comes after Obadiah, if that helps. <laughs> okay, so I think everybody's found it now. Jonah 1 verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. I think that's how the name is pronounced. Now this verse allows us to find Jonah somewhere else in Scripture. We can find him going back to 2 Kings chapter 14. This Jonah, son of Amittai. So go with me to 2 Kings, back into the history section of uh, the Bible. And there's, there's a fair bit of history in the Bible, which is, as Paul says, put there for our instruction and admonition, and we can learn from them. I hope we learn something from them. I, don't, I think we will. 2 Kings 14, verse 23 and 25. This Jonah person shows up again. It says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. So someone who'd come long before him with the same name, which had caused Israel to commit, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So Jonah came from a town called Gath-Hefer, which you can see up there. Up there. Right near Nazareth. Right near Nazareth. So he was a native of the northern part of the kingdom, which had split away from the southern part. And I've gone through that a couple of times, uh, part of the history of, of Israel. And it's right there near Nazareth, which is a little better known, only because that's where, where uh, we know it from Jesus' day, near the Sea of Galilee. So it's up there in Galilee, if you will. So that's where Jonah comes from. And, and what we read here about him in 2 Kings 14 tells us that he appears to be part of the company of prophets surrounding the king of the northern tribes, whose name was Jeroboam II. Now the time frame for that would be around 780 BC. 780 BC. About 50 years before the northern kingdom of Israel, which is the circled in red there, the kingdom of Judah is to the south. We're concerned with Israel today. That kingdom of Israel was going to be taken over, conquered. The people were going to be enslaved and dragged off by the Assyrians. 
This is about 50 years before that happened. Jonah's preaching. Right? Doom was on the horizon. There was some bad stuff coming for the nation of Israel. But in the days of Jonah, when Jonah was around, Israel was actually doing pretty well in some ways. What were they doing well at? Well, as we read there, the king had reestablished the borders. Like these areas up here. Well, I wish I had a pointer here. Those areas up there to the north. Those were foreign territories. And those people were attacking and they were coming in and they were grabbing territory away from Israel. And it says that Jeroboam II was getting it back. That's good. And the nation was doing well financially. So the stock market was up. The military was strong. Things were looking pretty good in Jonah's day. So it was a good time in Israel. It was a great time to be a patriot, a person who loved their country, which Jonah did, apparently. Now, at the same time that Jonah was there in the courts of Jeroboam II, two other men were operating, two other prophets. Does anyone know who the prophets who were uh, operating at the same time and in the same area as Jonah. Does anyone know who they were? Anyone? You do, because you heard this morning. Amos and Hosea. Okay, Amos and Hosea. They were basically contemporaries. They were at the same time speaking to the same people. But, you know, their message was very different from what we just read Jonah was talking about. Because we read here that, you know, Jonah's talking to the king about his victories, Right? So at the same time, Amos and Hosea were operating as prophets in the same region as Jonah. And they had a difficult task. Those two men, Amos and Hosea, they had a very difficult, very different task from Jonah. Because Amos and Hosea, well, they had, I mean, if you've read through, and we'll take a little sampling of, of it, but they gave scathing judgments and condemnations from God to the, the king. I don't think the king was very pleased to hear from Amos or Hosea. And, you know, both those prophets have much to say about this doom that I talked about that's heading Israel's way, even while times were great. I mean, Amos is best known as the prophet who spoke truth to power about the social and economic oppression in the northern kingdom of Israel, even while things were going so well. Hosea is best known for addressing Israel's faithlessness to their covenant commitment with Yahweh, the living God. Now compared to those men, Amos and Hosea, Jonah kind of had a cushy job, if you think about it. He kind of had a cushy job. He got to tell the king about his victories. You know, who, who do you think the king was more pleased to see? Who do you think got treated, you know, better? Jonah, as it says here, you know, in accordance with, uh, he, he was restoring the boundaries of Israel and in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah. So Jonah was talking about all the great stuff the king was going to be able to accomplish and do. That's a pretty good gig as a prophet. I mean, Hosea had to do some awful stuff. Hosea's life was very challenging. He got to tell the king stuff the king wanted to hear. So why was Jonah, why was Jonah giving Jeroboam the king, Jeroboam II, who was the king, prophecies of victories at the same time, Amos and Hosea were dishing out all this hard criticism. What gives? What's with this guy? Was Jonah a false prophet? You know, was he like one of those prophets that you read about in other sections of scripture where they would come into the king and say, oh king, oh victory is yours. And uh, you know, or a hireling like uh, Balaam who basically would give you a good palm reading for the money. Was that what he was all about? Was he a false prophet? Just telling the king what he wanted to hear rather than the word of God. Well, there, there were plenty of false prophets in the king's court. 
You read about that, particularly with Jeremiah and his interaction with the other, other prophets. We'll see it a little bit with Amos. But I don't think that we, we have to categorize Jonah this way. Just because he's talking about stuff very different from what Amos and Hosea were talking about. I don't think that, that we have to count him as a false prophet. It says he's the prophet of the Lord, right? Even though, you know, when you read through the book of Jonah... I mean, Jonah really doesn't look so great in, his, in the book that goes by his name, does he? He kind of comes off like, wow, I don't want to be like that guy. No, no, no. He kind of, he basically comes off in a very unflattering picture in Scripture. You don't really see a lot of redeeming qualities in Jonah. So let's look at why God blessed this particular dynasty of kings. And, and we're looking at Jeroboam II. And if I had my pointer, I'd point at it there. You can see it up there. And Jonah's the prophet to this king, Jeroboam II. And he's part of this dynasty of kings who ruled northern Israel. All right? And I'm going to call it the House of Jehu. The House of Jehu. There have been more than one dynasty of kings. Sometimes... Uh, person you know, was given the kingship and they did terrible stuff and God took it away. These were not the sons of David. These are the kings of the northern, the northern uh, nation of Israel that split off. And this house of Jehu is very, very interesting. And we're going to, I hope, learn a few things by looking at them. We're going to look into how God could be blessing this dynasty of Jehu with victory and good stuff while at the same time issuing stern warnings to them and all the nation through the other prophets, Amos and Hosea. So Jonah kind of appears, and we'll, we'll, I think we'll see this, he kind of appears to have allowed his patriotic love of his country to override obeying God. You know the story of Jonah, right? I, I, anyone not know the story of Jonah? We all know the story of Jonah, right? He kind of comes off like a person who sort of allowed his patriotic love of his country to override obeying God. And he ran away from God. He wasn't happy with God's need to punish the northern kingdom, which he was part of. These were his people. He wasn't happy that this was going to happen. And then... In that, we'll take a look at him, and I'm going to ask a couple of questions about our own personal loyalties and where they lie. So that's where I'm going to go, just so you know. Now, a promise was made to Jeroboam II's father. So if you go up the, the, line, the line here, you see that his father was a guy named Jehoash. Jehoash. And Jonah was a prophet, of course, in the courts of Jeroboam II. But we're going to go back a generation and we're going to look at Jeroboam's father, whose name is Jehoash. This man Jehoash reigned for 17 years. And during his 17-year reign, Jehoash, he got a kind of a good news, bad news prophecy from none other than the prophet Elisha. Go to 2 Kings 13. 2 Kings 13. And uh, let's just read, let's start off reading verse 14. It says here, Now Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he would die. And Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elijah is a very old man. He's at the end of his life, and he's basically on his deathbed. And he's going to speak one last time to the king. And this king, King Jehoash, well, he seems to actually have enjoyed a pretty good relationship with Elisha. I mean, he's, he's there at his deathbed. He's crying. He's weeping at his deathbed. He calls him my father, my father. And Elisha did have a very good relationship or a very, well, let's say very strong and interwoven relationship 
with this whole dynasty of, of Jehu and all his sons. And he'd, he'd actually been part of the original um, transfer to King Jehu, but here he was dealing with his grandson, Jehoash, and his grandson calls Elisha father, father, and then he also says, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, which shows that not only was he distraught over the coming death of Elisha, but he was very concerned about the situation in Israel. You know, what's going to happen to the army, the chariots, the, you know, the nation? It's, it's looking really bad. Because before the good times that I talked about with Jeroboam II, things weren't so good. They were not so good. These nations up there, Aram, which is just like on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, up there, like the corner of the slide, they were pushing down, they were attacking, they were, they were taking land away, like I said earlier. And he might have been wondering, well, what are we going to do when this guy, Elisha, when, when Elisha is gone? I'm sure that having Elisha there made him feel a lot more confident. Just having him around, knowing that you know, here's the man of God, and he's around, you know, God's with us. And he was going to die. What's going to happen? You know, and sometimes I, I, I feel that way. I feel a little safer in a situation when I'm with God's people, you know. If I'm in an airplane, I think, well, surely it won't crash. You know, <laughs> Mr. Parks is with me. <laughs> maybe, maybe the plane would crash if it was just me. But seeing as how it's Mr. Parks, he's with me, I feel better. You know what I'm talking about? You know, yeah, you feel a little safer when there's church people around. We help one another. We, you know, we make each other feel a little more confident. That's a good thing. So turn to second, oh, no, not don't turn. We're going to go just go to the next verse. So verse 15. Let's carry on with what Elisha is going to talk about here. So here he is. He's on his deathbed. He's got one last thing to say to this man who's the king. Elisha said, okay, get a bow. You're worried about the military. You're worried about what's going to happen to the nation. Get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Now take the bow into your hands, he said to the king of Israel. And when he'd taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said. And he opened it. Shoot, Elijah said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Cool. Then he said, okay, take the arrows. And the king took them. And Elisha told him, strike the ground. And he struck it three times. Wham, wham, wham. And then he stopped. So the king took the arrows, and the king, like Elisha told him, hit the ground three times. And the man of God, Elisha, was angry with him, and he said, You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have completely defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. And then Elisha died, and he was buried. So... What's going on? I mean, I feel like I look at this and I think, wow, I, I could have done that. That would have, could have been me banging the arrows. You know, I bang it three times and then he says, that's not enough. That could have been me, right? Could have been you. What perhaps was going on is perhaps God, Elisha, was angry with the king's lack of zeal. His lack of zeal. His timidity. You know, his lack of determination. A tendency to think small. Should have just kept whacking, 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 whacking until I told you to stop. But you didn't. You just did it three times and then, okay, I did it. So what happened? Well, the king did get a blessing, right? He was going to have victory over Aram. But he got a limited victory. Right? Northern Israel would have a period of mil military success, business success, and that would be during the reign of Jeroboam II, his son, the time of Jonah. It would be good times for a while, and then it would stop. And that's what the prophecy said. That was the prophecy that Elisha had delivered. Jehoash's son, Jeroboam II, was part of a successful interlude for northern Israel. And Jonah got to be the prophet 
who got to deliver more detailed prophecies to this king about the victories that were going to come his way. All three of them, maybe. So yes, he was speaking God's word. He was fulfilling the prophecy that had begun with Elisha. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, it was a sweet gig as a prophet. I mean, if you had to choose between being Hosea, you know, and having to marry a prostitute, or Amos, you know, and being chased out of town, or being Jonah and getting to show up in the king's court and tell him he was going to win the war, I think, you know, you might pick Jonah. I don't know. It sounds like, it sounds like the, you know, the easy gig or the good one. Lack of follow-through. Lack of follow-through. I think that's the theme that we're going to see with the house of Jehu. So we're going to go back to the very beginning. We're going to go back to the beginning of the house of Jehu, the line of Jehu. God founded this line uh, or dynasty of, of Jehu for a reason. He had a purpose. And they followed through on some of the elements of what God wanted done. But they failed to see the job all the way through. And that's important, right? I mean, if you've got someone who's working for you and they start a job and they don't finish it, they don't do all the stuff that they're supposed to do, are you happy? No. God wants us to follow through. Finish the thing that you've started. I mean, the scriptures talk about you can live 70 years doing good, being a great person, and then, you know, the last two years you slack off and you're just, you're terrible. Well, that's just... Everything is worthless. The 70 years mean nothing. Follow-through is super important. To explain this lack of follow-through, I want to go back to Jehu. All right Now, before the dynasty of Jehu, there was a previous line of kings, and it was called the House of Omri. And the most famous king of that was Ahab. All right? what's, what's Ahab famous for? Does anyone know? What is Ahab most famous for? Marrying Jezebel, right? Jezebel. What she's famous for is not being like a, you know, a wanton woman. What she's really, what, what's detestable about Jezebel is she brings in the disgusting worship of Baal into Israel. She came from that region up there on the coast that's just north of Israel, which is Phoenicia. And she brought this Baal worship into the country. And then she used the power and the money of the king to promote it. And this is what Elijah's ministry was combating. That's a big part of what Elijah, that's what his ministry was combating. And, you know, Elijah spent a lot of time with, with Ahab. And trying to work against this Baalism. And it's, you know, infiltrating and dominating the country. Now, if you know the story of Elijah, you know that before the job was done, Elijah just got totally worn out. He was just beat up from the whole thing, and he asked to be retired. And I've actually done that in a message previously. And Elisha took over. Yeah. Their names are so similar, it gets very confusing sometimes. But Elijah retired, Elisha moved in. Job of getting rid of Baalism wasn't quite over. You know, Elijah had the big thing with the uh, uh, priests of Baal on Mount Carmel, and they you know, kill all these priests. There were still lots of them in the countryside, though. And they needed to deal with these people. And Elisha took over. Now, that places us about 50 years before the days of Jonah and Jeroboam II. And working through Elisha, God took away the kingship from Ahab, Omri, the house of Omri, and he gave it to Jehu. So let's go back to 2 Kings 9. 2 Kings 9, verses 1 through 13. It says, The prophet Elisha summoned a man from the company of the prophets, and he said to him, Tuck your cloak into your belt and take this flask of olive oil with you and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you get there, Look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Go to him, get him away from his companions, and take him into an inner room. Then take the flask and pour the oil on his head and declare, This is what the Lord says. 
I anoint you king over Israel. <laughs> Man, this is funny. Then open the door and run away. Don't delay. So the young prophet went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he arrived, he found the army officers sitting together. I have a message for you, commander, he said. For which of us? asked Jehu. For you, commander, he replied. Jehu got up and he went into the house. Then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and he declared, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people, Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets. Uh, you know, Ahab had, going, had, had you know, sponsored going around killing God's prophets in the land. And the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. That's the first king who was established after Solomon's son, Rehoboam, caused the breakup of the, the nation. As for Jezebel, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel. That's a very significant place for Ahab. And no one will bury her. Then he opened the door and he ran. I love that little detail. When Jehu went to his fellow officers, one of them asked him, Is everything all right? Why did that maniac come to you? Well, you know that man and the sort of things he says, Jehu replied. That's not true, they said. Tell us. And Jehu said, Here, oh, well, if you, if you, must, if you must know, here's what he told me. This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps, and then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So these were military men, and uh, Jehu was a military commander, and he quickly got the support of the army, and they declared him king. And Jehu personally killed the current king, who was Amaziah, and the regent, whose name was uh, Joram. Let's take a look at that. 2 Kings 9, verse 21 through 27. Hitch up my chariot, Joram ordered. And when it was hitched up, Joram, king of Israel, the regent king, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, rode out, each in his own chariot, to meet Jehu. They met him at the plot of ground that had belonged to Naboth the Jezreelite. When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, Have you come in peace, Jehu? How can there be peace, Jehu replied, as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel is around? Joram turned around and fled, calling out to Ahaziah, Treachery! Treachery, Ahaziah! He's like, look out! Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart, and he slumped down in his chariot. And Jehu said to Bidkar, his chariot officer, Pick him up and throw him in the field that belonged to Naboth the Jezreelite. Remember how you and I were riding in chariots behind Ahab his father when the Lord spoke this prophecy against him. Yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, and I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground, declares the Lord. Now then pick him up and throw him in that plot in accordance with the word of the Lord. Then he executed Jezebel and all the other members of Ahab's family. And finally, then he rounded up the remaining prophets of Baal who were scattered all over the land, and he had them all killed. And that's uh, the next chapter, chapter 10. Let's just read briefly 28, verse 28 through 31. It says, So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. It wasn't, job wasn't done with, with Elijah. However... There's always a however in there, isn't there? However, so he did this good stuff. Jehu destroyed Baal worship. He was doing what God had wanted. And God's, God's talking about this, and then he says, however, however. So something's not quite right here. You know, someone's talking to you, and they say, well, this is all good, but. That's kind of what's going on here. However, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, the worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you've done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. 
Yet, there's that but, it keeps coming in there. Yet, Jehu was not careful to keep the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. The sins of Jeroboam. We've talked about this before. It's a couple of years ago now. I did it. The sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. When the two nations split up, the people who were in the north split away politically. And they said, we need to keep our people separate. We don't want them going down to Jerusalem, worshiping there. So we're going to set up an alternate place for them to go. Instead of Jerusalem, we're going to have Bethel. That's right down here. So they changed the place of worship to Bethel. And they also said, we're going to have it at a different time. We're going to change the, the holy days. We're going to move them to different times. We're going to meet in different places. These are the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, changing the way people worshipped Yahweh. Those are the sins of Nebat. There's more. But that's the basic gist of it. Changing the times and seasons and the places, altering the commands and replacing what God had instructed to, as far as how to worship with other stuff of their own. Right? I mean, we see it all around us, even to our own day. So these kings, the dynasty of Jehu, they were in charge for over 50 years. And they, they wiped out the blatant Baal worship that was taking place in Israel. They got rid of it, killed all these priests. It was bloody, it was nasty. God told them to do it. The disgusting Baal worship was gone. And uh, as a reward, Jehu was promised four generations of his sons would rule on the throne. Those sons were Jehoahaz, Jehoash, Jeroboam II, and then the last one, Zechariah, who was assassinated after six months. The house of Jehu persisted in the error of worshiping Yahweh, the true, the living God of the Bible, with practices which God never commanded, such as changing the appointed times, changing the appointed locations of worship, using images like golden calves. I mean, I think sometimes people, we all get the wrong idea about the golden calves. Remember back in Exodus when you know, the, the golden calf, as Aaron said, popped out of the fire. What do they say about it? Here is the God who led you out of Egypt. They were making images of God. They were breaking the commandment. That's what they were doing. That's what was wrong. They weren't introducing some other God like, well, let's worship Nimrod. They were worshiping God in ways that he didn't approve of and didn't want. And worshiping God in the wrong way leads to bad consequences. So God takes it very seriously. These are the sins of Jeroboam of Nebat. And, and the house of Jehu never dealt with it. They dealt with the Baalism, but they never dealt with this other stuff. You look at the names, they're all kind of similar, you know? Jehoaz, Jehoash, Jehu. These were very conservative, kind of religious -y sort of names because the, they have the name of Yahweh in them all. It was a very conservative family. And then you see Jeroboam II. That's kind of interesting. Who, you're going to name your, your son after who? Jeroboam, the original king who established all the bad practices in the first place, right? I put it to you that this group of people, I mean, they were military people, very conservative. Military people are usually pretty conservative. They had, you know, the, by naming of their family line indicates a fairly conservative approach. I put it to you that they were more interested in preserving national traditions than seeking the truth of God. These were traditions that they had developed. They were, you know, they were different. They were unique to northern Israel. This is what makes us a people. We're northern Israel. This is what we're all about. They were really committed to this stuff. And uh, Baalism, by comparison, was a foreign religion. And it was kind of easy to see, yeah, we need to get rid of that stuff. But this other stuff, you know, the calves, meeting in Bethel, well, it's all pointed towards God, isn't it? So it's all good, right? And these are our traditions, our own special, unique way of worshiping God. 
What did it matter that they weren't established by scripture? They were beautiful traditions, which everyone loved. And we have the same stuff going on today, don't we? Conservative and traditional values are not the same thing as godly truth. And that is a reality pill that many of us in the Church of God, especially in the United States, need to swallow. They're not the same thing. Conservative values do not reverence the Sabbath command or the holy days, which spell out the plan of God. They don't love the true teaching of the resurrection or the nature of God. We are not conservatives. We are the people of God. There's a difference, big difference, an important difference. Let's go back to Jonah. So you remember the prophecy that Elisha delivered, right? With the arrows, striking the arrows on the ground. So the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel would have victory. Good stuff would happen. Good stuff can happen to people who are completely wrong. God has his reasons and his purposes and his promises. So they'd have their victories, but it would not be complete. Just as Jehu and sons their obedience and service to God was limited and not complete. They did what they did. God was, okay, good, thank you for doing that. But you, you didn't follow through on all this other stuff. They didn't have the follow through. And so what they had, all the blessings they got were limited, not complete. So Jonah, to get back to Jonah, he spoke the word of the living God to King Jeroboam II about those victories, and as I've mentioned, is, is probably a pretty good gig. While other men like uh, Hosea and Micah, or sorry, Hosea and uh, Amos would deliver criticism and correction and judgment, both of, you know, and it was all the word of God, Jonah's was as well. But I wonder if being the prophet of national victory, which Jonah had this task, he was the one who got to say, King, you're gonna win, this is gonna be great, Israel, yeah, Israel. You got to be the prophet who said this stuff. wonder if it kind of changed the way he thought about things. And I wonder if maybe, maybe, um, being the prophet of national victory made Jonah substitute national pride and patriotism for God and covenant. Maybe. I mean, you know the story of Jonah, right? When God called him, he ran away. So Let's take a very brief look at the stuff that the other prophets were saying at the same time. So what about Hosea? I mean, Hosea's task was to call out the unfaithfulness of Israel to their covenant with God. And that unfaithfulness included injustice and, and you know, moral integrity. But Hosea was more focused on the false worship as the root of Israel's evils. So take a look at Hosea 3 verse 1. Hosea 3 verse 1. Hosea had a rough time. He was told to marry a prostitute because that would symbolize how God felt about his relationship with Israel. It says here, The Lord said to me, Hosea, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So Hosea's life was used by God as a living metaphor, right? And he was instructed to marry this woman who was a prostitute to picture the way God felt about this nation. He loved them, but they were bad. You know, they were not respecting the covenant. And one of the children that Hosea and this woman have is named Unloved. Whoa, that's rough, eh? The other one's called Not My People. Wow. Why? Because they were, you know, the, as, a, as a people, the children of Israel were not developing into the likeness of their father. They were like illegitimate children. Go to Hosea 4, verse 6. Hosea 4, verse 6 through 7, it says, My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge, and because you've rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests, because you have ignored the law of your God. I will ignore your children. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me and exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. Something, you know, like 
the golden calf. Drop down to verse 15. Though you, Israel, commit adultery, do not let Judah become guilty. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not go to Beth-Avon. Do not swear as surely as the Lord lives. So they were doing this stuff at Bethel, which is actually what Beth-Avon means. And they were pointing it at Yahweh. Like it says, and do not swear as surely as the Lord lives. So they were substituting God's specific instructions about worship for traditions of their own. So I circled Bethel. I kind of pointed it out earlier. See how close it is to Jerusalem? They set it up as a substitute. It was uh, literally the place of confusion or vanity. That's where the golden calf was, right? Um, it was a place of significance going back to the time of Abraham, so it had all kinds of national pride issues. The first Jeroboam had made it into a national shrine to replace Jerusalem and uh, you know, capture the hearts and minds of the people. Gilgal, a little further north there, was a place of significance in the founding history of the northern nation. And it probably became a shrine of national greatness or something like that, you know, like the, the uh, Lincoln Memorial or something like that, you know, some place that people like to go to celebrate how great it is, you know, to be in the United States, which is, it's a good place to be. Don't get me wrong. It's a great place to be. But Gilgal had turned into this problem place because it was, they were totally focused on their national greatness. And they started weaving religion into it. And they were directing all this pride and national vanity towards Yahweh. But he didn't like what they were doing. You can read a little bit more about that in, in Amos. In short, I think what, what God says through Hosea is, don't glory in your national greatness and your humanly devised traditions while you dishonor me by not doing what I tell you. You, know, you, you get all hung up on the blessings that I poured out on you. But you won't do what I tell you. Hosea 9, verse 3. And, you know, we could, we could have the same problems in our own lives where we think, okay, if I'm being blessed, that means everything I do is right. No. Hosea 9, verse 3. Hosea actually specifically talks about Assyria. So <laughs> he gets into the, you know, the specifics of the doom that lays ahead. He says, uh, they will not remain in the Lord's land. Ephraim will return to Egypt and eat unclean food in Assyria. Chapter 11, verse 5, says the same sort of thing. He says, will they not return to Egypt, to slavery? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? So again, while Jonah is prophesying to King Jeroboam II about you know, the limited victories that Elisha had predicted, Hosea was looking ahead to the coming punishment for Israel. And Assyria is explicitly mentioned here as the invaders. And that's going to play into Jonah's reaction to God's calling. When we get to the book of you know, Jonah, and you think, what is God asking him to do? Go and preach repentance to the Assyrians. So let's take a quick look then at the prophetic message of Amos, the other prophet who was active in the days of Jonah. And you know, he, again, was given the role of calling out social injustice and corruption in Israel which was also a violation of the covenant. You know, the covenant is not just about priests and sacrifices. It is about moral duties and social duties and justice. And they were breaking this stuff. So just a few quickies. Uh, Amos 2, verse 6 through 8. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor and on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge in the house of their God. They drink wine taken as fines. It's talking about business behavior and business practices. Remember when we went through the book of Ruth, the sandal, the sandal is a sign of contracts. That's what he's getting at here. This is about business contracts and the way people are doing business with each other. They're ripping each other off. They're being corrupt, deceitful. Keeping the cloak, as a, which is given as a pledge, like someone gives collateral when they're making a, or receiving a loan. They give their cloak. And, you know, Exodus 22 verse 25 says, you, you don't keep the cloak overnight. The person needs it to stay warm. 
they were breaking these these basic fundamental laws because it's a, not a, it's about being unjust and cruel and imposing your economic power on other people and grinding them down into the dust and that's what God's getting at here that's what Amos is talking about you know they would drive people into debt because they paid tax to make the taxes so high people had to borrow money to pay the taxes like their property taxes you know you, you pay property taxes whether you've got an income or not right the people would have to go out and they'd have to borrow money, and then if they couldn't, they'd foreclose on the, on the property. And this is the kind of stuff you see all throughout Scripture. Uh, we're in Amos, go to chapter 4, verse 1. It says, hear, the, hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, uh, Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needies, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. You know, taking all this ill-gotten money and you know, using it to buy me some high-quality wine. On their own pleasures. We're going to look at uh, chapter 5, verse 10. It says, uh, There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, you've built stone mansions, but you won't live in them. Though you've planted lush vineyards, you will not drink the wine. So there's more explicit mention here of taxes along with bribery, corruption. You know, and I said that the times were really good in Israel, right? And they were. They were getting these victories from God. Business was great. The military is successful. But this is what's going on underneath. Just because there's success. And I think, you know, you can look at our own country and you can say, yeah, you know, I mean, stock market's back up again. Woohoo! It is. You know, it's been nice. I've been watching my money grow. It's great. But what's going on underneath the surface is terrible. We're seeing the same kind of stuff in our country. Just because times are good doesn't mean that everything underneath is good. Plenty of people didn't like hearing this kind of stuff. And there were other prophets in the court of the king, you know, besides Jonah, who seemed to think that you, know, you could only say positive things about what God was up to. You know, and, and I think we see a lot of that where people say, well, I don't want to hear about anything negative that God's doing. Talk about how much God loves me and what God's going to bless me with and how he's going to take care of me. So Amos... You stink. Take a look at Amos 7, verse 10 uh, through 13. It says, Then uh, Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, Jeroboam II, king of Israel, and said, Amos, this Amos guy is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel, and the land cannot bear his words. For this is what Amos is saying, Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, get out, you seer, you prophet, get out of here. Go back to the land of Judah, earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. So he didn't like bad news, wanted to get rid of him. And if you read on here, it says, what does Amos say? Amos answered Amaziah, verse 14, I wasn't a prophet or a son of a prophet. I mean, I wasn't raised up in your, you know, professional prophet guild, which is what they had. But I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock, and he said to me, Go prophesy to the people of Israel. He says, Now then, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and stop preaching against the descendants of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. So, as you know, Amos had his troubles and they didn't like hearing it. They didn't want to hear this stuff. This is what's going on at the same time that Jonah's preaching. So, you know, we're looking at Jonah kind of, right? What was Jonah up to? He was talking to the king, he was there in the court, and he got to say, Oh, king, <laughs> victory is yours. So, who is Jonah loyal to? We don't know. I don't know. Was Jonah a trained prophet like Amos said he wasn't? You know, has Jonah been brought up in the school of prophets? You know, the one that Elijah ran. Legit school of prophets. You know, trained, eloquent. I don't know. He was in the king's court, regular there. We do know he got to tell the king about victories and stuff like that, which is, is good. So, but what did he think about the dynasty of Jehu? Don't know. We really don't know. Was he proud of Israel? Did he love his country? Was he a patriot? All that she had been, would be, 
Was he proud of that stuff? I think so. I don't know. I mean, I can't read his mind through what we have in Scripture. What was his relationship with uh, men like Hosea, Amos? You know, surely he must have known about Hosea's explicit proclamations of Israel's doom at the hands of Assyria. They were, they were contemporaries. You, I read it from Hosea, right? He knew. Go back to the book of Jonah. It says, and we're going to, this time, we'll read uh, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Amittai. We spent the last you know, section of the sermon talking about that one verse, right? Here's what God told him to do. He said, Okay, go to the great city of Nineveh, capital of Assyria, and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He basically heard what God wanted to do and took off in the other direction, got on a boat, tried to get as far away from Assyria as possible. Some people think that Tarshish is like Spain, going in the complete opposite direction. Now the usual pattern of the prophetic books is, God said to the prophet, go, and the prophet went. That's the usual pattern, right? But in this case, not so much, because Jonah runs away. Which I think speaks a lot to where his head was at. Why was he thinking this? If he, you know, he was a true prophet. God spoke to him, and he ran away in the opposite direction. Why? Why would he do that? I don't know the answer. I'm trying to just think it through here. We do know from what he says later in chapter 4 of the book named after him that he did not want the Assyrians to hear the word of God and to repent. He didn't want them to repent because if they repented, then they wouldn't be destroyed, right? And if they weren't destroyed, then they would one day invade and deport the people of northern Israel, his people, Jonah's people. So, who was Jonah loyal to? His loyalty to Israel appears stronger than his loyalty to God. And he ran away. And that same problem can happen to you and it can happen to me. We can find ourselves identifying more strongly with our nation or a political party or our ethnicity or our economic class, and we can identify more strongly with that than we do with God and His church. That's how we interact with God, through His church. So, who are we? Who are you? We are the people of God. That's where our loyalty should be. That's where our heart should be to God, God's people, and God's church.